there were times that I wished I could um, just teach it right then. There were some things that I saw in this that the story that we've all heard so many times, and there were things that I saw that I, I guess I'd never really realized or, or God had never showed me. And I want to try to bring some of those things out today. <clears throat> As we look at the book of Job and study the book of Job and read all of the, about the terrible events that took place in Job's life, we see that Job's story has a, a long answer to a common question. And this is the question, if God is the sovereign Lord of the universe, then why does he allow suffering to come to the godly and good fortune to the wicked? And that question has been asked for years and years. David, King David in the Bible, he even made the statement that <clears throat> he almost slipped at one point in his life <clears throat> because he saw the prosperity of the wicked. And here he was a man after God's own heart, and he was struggling with things, and, and things were seemingly, seemingly against him, and it almost made him slip and fall. So we see that it's not anything new. But David came around to the conclusion in the end that he said, I've never seen the righteous forsaken, and I've never seen his seed begging for bread. And that's partial part of the answer to the question. But it's a very hard concept, I think, for us to understand as human beings. When we look at Job's, <clears throat> Job's reaction to a situation, we see that in the face of multiple calamities, remember he lost his, all his camels, all his oxen, all his sheep, all his children. Everything was destroyed. But in the face of multiple calamities, he was forced to examine this concept and forced to scrutinize his concept of who God was too. I think one of the problems we have as Christians is that we have the wrong concept of who God really is. For some, and stay with me here, for some, he's this overbearing, invisible, Santa Claus-like person that his main job is keeping up with who's naughty and who's nice. Honestly, that's what a lot of people think of God. He is up there in the sky somewhere, <clears throat> and he keeps track of everything we do and everything that's good and everything that's bad, and he writes it all down in the book. And for some people, that is their entire concept of who God is that he just spends all his time waiting for us to do something wrong so he can smack us on the head for it. That's not what God is. When we read the book of Job, we see that those close to Job held this same opinion. His wife and his three best friends. The only reason that they could come up with for Job's suffering was that Job had sinned. That's what God is. He sits up there, and Job, he's watched your life, and obviously you've been a very bad person, and that's why all this stuff's happening to you. You must have done some horrible stuff. Because in their view, human suffering is a direct result of sin. They believe that God punishes the wicked in this life by sending affliction, and he rewards the righteous in this life by providing blessing. <clears throat> it's funny that today there are so-called ministers that uphold that same philosophy. Talked a little bit about this last week. They will tell you if you give to their ministry, they will guarantee you that you will have prosperity and God will take away all your suffering. They do it on TV all the time. It's not true. If you apply that to Job, you see that that's not the case at all. Since Job was a righteous man, 
Job knew that he was a righteous man, and more importantly, God knew that Job was a righteous man. In Job 1 and 8, God himself gave Satan this glowing review of Job's life. He said, <clears throat> there is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. That's God himself speaking of Job. So that throws out all that theory of the reason Job was getting, having all these things happen to him is because there was sin in his life. What better recommendation to have on your life than that one from God himself? And this is sometimes puzzling to us because we know for certain that Job's affliction had nothing to do with sin in his life. So then why did it happen? What was the purpose for it? You know, have you ever asked God or made the statement to God, God, this doesn't make sense. Why, why is this happening or why did that happen? It doesn't make sense. And I'm sure in Job's mind, that went through his mind. It's human nature when we don't understand to make the statement, I don't understand. One of the things I think that is important for us to take away from the life of Job is that God is not a distant God. He is a God that loves us. He cares about us. And just as he did with Job, God hears us when we call out to him. And that is going to be the key of what I want us to really grasp hold of today. Job, let's go to Job chapter 2, verses 11 and 13. 11 through 13. <clears throat> when Job's three friends... Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite heard about all the troubles that had come upon him. They set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. Boy, that was... Wow. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. And they began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. After all the events that happened in the first two chapters of Job, loses everything, his three best friends come to him, and they just stand there looking at him. And for seven days and seven nights they stood there, and sat there then and just looked at him. They didn't say anything. And then Job makes a statement in the following chapter of where he was in his life at that time. And the short version of that is he cursed the day that he was born. <clears throat> he asked God, why didn't you just let me die as I was being born? And Job justified that it would have been so much easier if God had allowed that to happen all of this would have been avoided. If you would have just done that, God, why didn't you do it? Then, after Job makes his statement, in the following several chapters, one of Job's so-called friends steps up to talk to Job, and he defends this traditional view of the reason that tribulation came on Job. In chapter 4, verses 7 through 9, Job's friend Eliphaz the Temanite says this. This is Job's buddy. Consider now, <clears throat> who being innocent has ever perished? That's an accusation. Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. 
That's comforting, isn't it? At the breath of God, they are destroyed. At the blast of His anger, they perish. That's His comforter. Job responds to his friend in chapter 6 and 7. In fact, let's read Job chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. This is Job's response. Then Job replied, If only my anguish could be weighed and all my misery be placed on the scales, it would surely outweigh the sands of the seas. No wonder my words have been impetuous. The arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks in their poison. God's terrors are marshaled against me. And Job continues over the next couple chapters with this outpouring of emotion that's directed at both his friend and at God. And in the end, Job is not at all comforted by his buddy. Then in chapter 8, another friend steps up. This is Bildad the Shuhite. We'll just call him Bill. Steps up to Job and he delivers this encouraging talk, much like the one of Eliphaz. He explains to Job once again that all of this was a result of sin, and he was going to die for it. And it was all for one simple reason, and this was a little bit different take on it. He tells Job, because this is what you deserve. That's what he said. Bildad even goes on beyond the traditional teaching about the righteous prosper and the wicked are punished, because he concludes that all of Job's children had sinned too, because they all died. He just got the whole family in the mix. Now, why, let, me, let me stop for a minute and say, while the Bible does say that the wicked will suffer, it never, prevents, it never permits reverse logic and reasoning that everyone who suffers is being punished for sin. You can't take it and twist it like that. The Bible does speak of the wicked suffering, but we can't twist it around to fit our own agenda and say that everybody that's suffering has sinned. That's not the case. Job is a perfect example, and I believe that's one of the reasons that we have this story of Job. And it's one of the reasons that when, when the story starts, it's made very, very clear that Job was a righteous man. God himself gave Job an endorsement. So it takes away all of those twisted logic things and puts it back into perspective that everybody could suffer. Everybody could have trials. Everybody can have persecution. doesn't matter who you are. Job's speech in chapters 9 and 10 is in response to his friend Bildad the Shuhite. In fact, Job chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, and then Job chapter 9, verses 32 and 35, through 35. Then Job replied, Indeed, I know that this is true, but how can a mortal be righteous before God? He is not a man like me that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. If only there were someone to arbitrate between us, to lay his hand on, upon us both, Someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more. And this is a key, another key to that whole thing. Then I would speak up without fear of him. But as it now stands with me, I cannot. Job listens to the comfort of his two friends who told him he was obviously suffering because of his horrible sin. All his children had died because of their sin. And then in verse 2, Job answer and his reply to their assertion 
is that no one is really righteous anyway. There's no one that's righteous enough to stand before a holy God. But then he wonders out loud. He says, how could a man stand before a holy God and plead his case? How can I, just a man, stand before God and plead my case? What right do I have to that? Job then acknowledges that God is not a mortal creature. He's not, he's not like us. He's not a man that I can just walk up to and talk to. You can't just walk up there and say, okay, God, i got something to say to you. Job realized it was impossible for him to answer God as if the two of them were in some kind of legal dispute. He said, how can I confront him like we're in court? He's God, and I'm just a man. Basically, Job was saying, I can't take him to court. And then Job wishes later on that there was somebody that could mediate between him and God. I just wish there was somebody that would step in between us and, and he would place our hands, his hands on us both. And that was a, a reference back to a lot of times a judge, <clears throat> when he would rule in a case, he would call the two people forward and he would place his hand on the two of them and then he would pronounce his judgment. And that's what Job was saying. I wish that, they could, that we could have this situation where me and God could go before somebody and he, this mediator would put his hands on us both and he would make a decision. The only problem with that is the way Job saw it. God was not only the other party, he was the judge. And Job was saying, that, that, that isn't fair. I'm up against the guy that gets to make the final decision. And I can't just go and plead my case. And Job reasoned that if this other person existed that could arbitrate this, then he could remove the punishment from him. He said, the, the, remove that rod of terror from me. And then I wouldn't be afraid. And then if that was gone and I wasn't terrified, I could go to God and I could stand in front of him and I could plead my case. But I can't do it. The truth was this. Job could speak to God all along. And as the events of Job's life unfolds, he realizes that not only can he do that, that he is doing that. As Job is complaining that he can't speak to God, he's actually addressing God with, it, with the speech. And if we really look at this closely, we can see that this is probably one of the most important lessons we can learn from God or learn from the, the story of Job, is that we can go to God ourselves and we can talk to God and say, this is how I feel. God, I need your help. And I think that's a very important thing for us to take away from the story because so many times I think we're just like Job that we feel like I, I'm not worthy to go to God. And no, you're not. But we can still go to Him. It's not because we're worthy. Remember Job said, there's no man righteous enough to go stand before God. And he was right. But the fact remains that we still can. He still listens. He still cares. He loves us. He wants us to come to Him. And of all the other things that I've, I've learned through the story of Job, I never really grasped hold of this until this past week. That's right. 
That's right. We might as well say it. Then Job's third friend, Zophar the Namathite, he was no more encouraging than the first two, but he did have a different take on the situation. He said that not only did Job deserve this suffering, in his opinion, Job was getting off easy. His opinion was, I think you deserve a lot more than you're getting. Because surely you've done something really horrible. Much of Zophar's counsel asserts that God is too mysterious for Job, a mere mortal, to understand. Now this is interesting. While this was true, Zophar undercut the impact of his own argument by thinking that he, also a mere mortal, could explain it to Job. That's what he said. In other words, he was saying, Job, God is too complex for humans to understand, so let me explain it to you. That's what he said. After Job's third friend, Zophar, cool name, gives his opinion of Job's troubles, Job responds in chapters 12, and four, 12 through 14. Let's read Job chapter 13, verses 20 through 24. Only do not two things unto me. This is what Job is asking. Then I will not hide myself from you. Are we in NIV? Withdraw your hand far from me and stop frightening me with your terrors. This is what Job is asking of God. I want two things. Withdraw your hand from me. Back up. And stop frightening me with your terrors. Number two. Then summon me and I will answer and let me speak and you reply. How many wrongs and sins have I committed? Show me my offense and my sin. Why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? See, Job is kind of getting, he's kind of getting the hang of this now. He's understanding that he can talk to God. And he's talking from his heart. In this passage, Job asked God to grant him two things. First of all, remove the punishment from me. Remove your hand of punishment. And secondly, stop scaring me. That's what he said. Stop scaring me. It's hard for me to talk to you when you scare me. Job reasoned that if God would meet these two preconditions, then he would respond to God, to what God had said, and God could respond to what he said. If you do these two things, God, then we can talk. Again, we see Job longing for the opportunity to talk to God, to talk to him openly and frankly, when all the while he was doing that anyway. God, if you'll just do these two things, we can have a conversation. And he was already doing it. In verse 23, Job pleads with God to show him any wrongs. Lord, tell me any wrongs that are in my life, any sins, any offenses, any transgressions. In the King James Version, it's called iniquity, sins, and transgressions. In other words, God, show me where I've gone astray. Show me where I've missed the mark. Show me where I have rebelled against you. Point them out to me so that I can see them. Now, Job wasn't saying this in a smarmy kind of way. 
I believe he was pleading with God kind of the way that David said it in Psalm Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. He was sincere. God, if there's something in my life, show it to me. I'll get rid of it. And then after I get rid of it, then, then we can sit down and talk. Because we need to talk. I believe this is something we should all do on a regular basis. God, show me if there's something in my life that shouldn't be there. Sometimes we, we, we get blinded by our impression of ourself. We like to think of ourselves as a pretty good person. I, I don't really have much to repent about. I don't, in fact, I don't have anything to repent about because I'm a good guy. Hey, yeah, uh, look at me. And then we, or we can justify things in our life because we're not as bad as somebody else. Remember the Pharisees? I do all of this, and thank God I'm not like him. Instead, we need to be saying like Job and like David did, God, look at my life. See if there's something in my life that shouldn't be there. If there's transgression, if there's sin, if there's iniquity, anything in my life, tell me so I can get rid of it, then we can talk. And if we would do the same thing and repent of it, walk away from it, whatever it is, and then don't return to it. Remember, repentance is changing direction. If we're headed this way doing something and we repent, we can't keep going that direction. We have to turn around and go the other way. So if we ask God to point these things out in my life, then we need to listen when He speaks to us. We need to say, God, I take those things from me. I'm going to change my direction. And I'm going to go back the other way. That's what we need to do. The key to all of this is, is one word. Communication. Communication between us and God. And I believe that God wants us to know that we can come to Him at any time for anything that's bothering us. Anything that concerns us concerns Him. Job said he, he felt as if God was hiding His face from him. And there are times in, in our lives that I think we feel the same way. Because I believe we feel that way because there's times when God allows us to go through certain things. <clears throat> the mistake that Job made during this time was this, he concluded that God considered him an enemy. And that wasn't the case. Remember, God was the one that put the boundaries up for Satan. First he said, you can take all his stuff, but you can't touch my servant Job. And then Satan said, well, yeah, but you let me get to him and he'll curse you to your face. He says, okay, you can, you can afflict him, but you can't kill him. See, God still loved him enough that he set up boundaries. The children of Israel were getting ready to cross into Canaan land, the promised land. Moses wasn't going to go, but Joshua was going to be taken over. And, and Moses stood and made a speech before they crossed over. In Deuteronomy 31 and 6, here's what Moses said. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. 
And you go, oh, well, that's in the Old Testament. Later in the New Testament, Paul wrote in Hebrews 13 and 5, he said, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Yes, we might feel like we're all alone. We might feel like God has hidden His face from us. We might feel like God considers us an enemy because we don't feel Him like we really would like to. But the promise is this, that He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. No matter how we feel at the time, we can be assured of that right there. See, we know that Job felt like God had forsaken him. But we also know that that wasn't the case because we have it all written down here. And it's easy for us because we flip to the back of the book and the back of the story and we go, ah, see, it all worked out. Job didn't have that, that luxury. Job was living it in real time. Just like us, anytime we're in the middle of something, if we could flip to the back of the book real quick and read how it comes out, we'd probably be able to go, oh, I'm okay with this then, yeah. See, I, I got to the back and I know that it all works out. Well, see, we have that promise. I can't, prom I can't tell you exactly how it ends for you, but I can promise you that, that God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. He'll always be there. Whatever you're facing in your life today, no matter how hopeless it seems, no matter how alone or how forsaken you might feel, know this, God is there. That's a promise. Not a promise from me, that's a promise from the Word of God. He was there for the children of Israel before they crossed into the promised land. He said, I'll be with you. Paul brought that back up and he quoted that scripture talking to the people, of the Hebrews, and he said, it's been written. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. It goes for us today. So after all this conversation between Job and God and his three friends, Job makes a statement of faith that is so powerful. In Job 19, verses 25 through 7, and then 23, verses 10 through 12, here's what Job said. I know that my Redeemer lives... And in the end, he will stand upon the earth. After my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. In Job 23, verses 10 through 12. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. My feet have closely followed his steps. I have kept to his way without turning aside. I have not departed from the commands of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my daily bread. In spite of all that had happened, Job concluded that my Redeemer lives. And ultimately, whatever happens Whatever comes and goes in this life, God will be there when everything else is gone. In the end, He will stand on the earth. 
So we see here that Job's faith has risen to a whole new level. Had things gotten any better? No. He was still sitting in that same pile of ashes, scraping his sores with broken pottery because he itched so bad. But he was able to say, I know my Redeemer lives. That's right. And that's what God wants for us. That's exactly what God... He wants us to feel His presence there. He wants us to know that He is there, no matter what we're going through. When Job was speaking of his Redeemer, he wasn't focusing so much on God as Savior, as a Savior, but rather thinking of the Lord as his defender. Someone who would ultimately vindicate him of all wrongdoing. Someday he's going to stand on the earth and all these friends of mine that think I've done all these wrong things, I'm going to be vindicated of all of this. Because my God knows. When Job says that in spite of his skin being destroyed, my skin is being destroyed, that means he knew he was dying. But in spite of that, he also knew that he would see his God. Still, Job was confident that even though he thought he was going to die, he was confident that God would defend him and would show him acquitted before his accusers. All you guys, Bill, Eli, Zophar, you three guys, someday you're going to see. What you think about me, it doesn't matter. Because I know my Redeemer lives. And I know that He will stand in the end when everything else is gone. And I will be vindicated. In Job chapter 23 and verse 12, Job states that he treasured the teachings of God as recorded in His Word. He said that I value these things, the words of, of His mouth, the words of God, more than my daily bread. I value these things more than, than, than my daily sus substance. More than the food I eat. And I think that's why Job could stand on the promises of God. Because he knew the promises of God. If we don't know the promises of God, how can we stand on them? If we don't know what the Word of God says for us, then how can we be comforted? David said in Psalm 119 and 11, he said, I have hidden your Word in my heart that I might not sin against you. That's why it's important for us to study the Word. That's why it's, for us to, it's important for us to take the Word and, and memorize it and, and make it a part of us so that when, when these things come against us, we can speak the Word. Pastor Magine said recently, he reminded us that when Jesus was, was being tempted in the wilderness, what did He come back with? The Word. David said, I've hidden your Word in my heart so that I don't sin against you. Know what the promises of God are. Know what God wants to do for us. Does that make our problems go away? Of course not. 
but it lets us know we have hope. It lets us know that we have a God that loves us and will never leave us or forsake us. If we hold that scripture that, that where Moses told the, the children of Israel and where Paul repeated it again in the New Testament that he will never leave us, he will never forsake us, no matter what we go through, we know that God is there. If we believe the word. Be assured, if you are feeling like Job today, you and he are not the only ones that ever feel that way. David, who was called a man after God's own heart, felt that same way very many times. But through it all, David learned, as Job did, that he could go to his God, that he could talk to him at any time, and that through that he would receive comfort and assurance that God was there and he really did care. David spoke freely with God. Look at a couple of these instances. Psalm 10 and 1. This is, this is from his heart. Feel this as you read it. Why, O oh Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm 13, verses 1 and 2. Oh long, how long, O oh Lord, will you forget me? Forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Psalm 64 and 1. Hear me, O God, as I voice my complaint. Protect my life from the threat of the enemy. David's relationship with God gave him confidence to approach God with his concerns. He knew that when he called out to God, that God really did hear him, so he presented his, his plea to God and waited. He knew that he and God were like this. Me and God were like this. I'm a man after his own heart. And so I can speak freely. Psalm 5, verses 1 through 3. Look what David said. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my sighing. <sighs> Listen to my cry for help, my King and my God, for to you I pray. In the morning, O Lord, here's the key, you hear my voice. In the morning I lay my request before you and wait in expectation. David would say, even though I feel like I'm alone, I know down in my heart that you hear my voice. And so I just lay these things out there and I'll just wait for what you're going to do. That's the relationship that David had with his God. And we too can, can approach God with our questions and our concerns and our frustrations and our fears. Hebrews 4 and 16 says, Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. It doesn't say, come up to the, to the throne with... Please don't beat me. He says, approach the throne of God, the throne of grace with confidence. With confidence of what? That the one you're approaching loves you. 
that the one you're approaching wants you to come there. He wants you to be there. The King James Version of that, of that Scripture says, let us come boldly before the throne of grace. Boldly. With confidence, come to God. When we have a concern, when we have a problem, when we have a situation in our life, we know that we can go to our God because He loves us. Right. That's exactly right. We do have to be careful that we don't go with arrogance and, and think that we are somebody. We have to realize that, that we are, as Job said, how, how, is there a righteous man that can stand before a holy God? Job was saying we're not worthy to stand before him, but we can. We can tell God anything. Now, again, as, as Brother Ashley said, it doesn't mean that we can come to God and demand that He complies with our, our list of demands and tell Him what He's going to do. But it does mean that we can go to Him with confidence and say, God, I need some help. That's right. In faith, we can know that we are His children. And here's an important thing. We have to realize that He wants what is best for us. God knows us. He knows our thoughts and beyond that. He knows the intent behind what we say. We don't have to be shy about coming to God. I will assure you that He is not surprised by anything you would tell Him. Makes it a little easier, doesn't it? It's nothing he hadn't heard before. And you say, well, how do you know that? Because he knows us better than we know ourselves. He created us. I believe when we pray, and stay with me for a minute here in the, the context that I'm saying this, I believe that when we pray, God prefers honesty to etiquette. It doesn't mean we should be disrespectful. But it doesn't it means we don't have to have this beautifully crafted prayer every time we come to God. Instead, it should be what's in our heart. We need to approach God as the one that loves us and is concerned about how we're feeling. Sometimes we need to lay down our dainty little spoons of nicely crafted prayers and pick up this dirty shovel of gut-level honesty and say, God, this is what's going on. I need your help. Amen. There's some people get so caught up in, in the, the proper and etiquette of prayer, and, and they have to have the these and thous in there, and it's not required. When you fall on your face before God, speak to Him from your heart. As if He were your Father, because He is our Heavenly Father. What would you say to your Father if He had the ability to, to, to take care of any situation in your life? How would you speak to Him? You would tell Him what you need. 
only thing we have to lose by just getting down and pouring out our heart is possibly our dignity. I can tell you this, as we saw with Job, living authentically with God is more than worth any amount of humiliation we might suffer. God, this is how I feel. I feel like you're hiding your face from me. I feel like you've gone away somewhere and you've abandoned me. David said the same thing. Some would ask, well, is it really all that important to say, stay in communication with God? Let's look at this a minute. In the world we live in today, communication has become probably one of the most important things. Almost everybody has a cell phone. Why? So that any time we just feel like it, we can just dial somebody and talk to them no matter where they are. Hey, how you doing? What are you doing? Where are you? If you think about it, 25 years ago, you would never call somebody and say, where are you? And now that's one of the first things that come out of your mouth. Hey, where are you? There you go. So communication is so important to us that we, we walk around. And, and anybody here have a Blackberry? If you have a Blackberry, there's actually a website that it's so addictive that there's a website, they call it Crackberry. Because people get addicted to it almost like crack. And you see people with Blackberries walking around and this is, this is the look on their face. Because they're sitting there just going through. You can get on the internet. You can check on sports. You can check on stock. You can get on your Facebook page. You can text message. You can take pictures. You can send pictures. Emails. I hardly ever log on to my, my email account anymore because it all comes right to my phone. If somebody calls my phone and leaves a message, it transfers it to, to print. It's called voice to text. So I don't even have to listen to my messages. I can just read them. How cool is that? So we value communication. Well, if we value communication among ourselves so much, why wouldn't we value that communication between us and God? If good relationships with one another are built on communication, then it would certainly be the key to answering the question of why it's so important to stay in communication with God. It's hard to have a relationship with somebody you don't ever talk to. Some people, the only time they talk to God is when they come to church. Think how long your marriage would have lasted if the only time you talked to your wife was once a week for about a few minutes on Sunday morning. Wouldn't last. To maintain a growing relationship with God, communication is a vital ingredient. God doesn't want to just hear from us when we're on the mountaintop. Hey, God, just want to give you a call. Let you know everything's fine. Yeah, I'm doing good. Okay, see you. He also doesn't want to just hear from us when we're down in the valley. Hey, God, I really need some help here. Um, give me a call back when you get a chance. I, I, I really i am needing something right now. No. God wants a communication that's real time. 
Like 24. Anybody watch 24? It's real time. It happens. Every, everything that happens as it happens. And God wants us to communicate with Him as our life happens. The Scripture that says pray without ceasing, it's, it's, a, it's saying that what we should do is to have this, this mentality and this mindset of prayer through the day. To where we're in this constant contact with God. Kind of like we walk around with a, a headset on and dialed to God's number. And we just talk to Him. We can just talk to Him. You ever see people do that? You, you see them walking along and it looks like they're just talking to themselves? Yeah, okay. And there's no one around. And then you realize they got one of those little earpieces in there. That's the way people should look at us as we go through our day. They should see us and who's he talking to? Oh, probably God. Why not? Pray without ceasing. And that doesn't mean that we, we never get up and, and go do anything else, but in that mindset that we're, we're in this constant communication with our God. Job's example sets a prayer standard for us in, in hard times. There are times for silence before God. But often we're silent and aloof in our misery. The times when we should be talking to Him, we withdraw. When in reality we need to be calling out to Him and seeking Him out. Laying out our hearts before Him. And growing in our communication and relationship with Him. Those times when we're hurt and when we feel neglected and when we feel abandoned, those are the times we need to work on that communication. Well, what if we do that? What can we expect? The book of Job says in Job 42 and 12, the Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. After all that he went through, he never was unfaithful to God. He always believed that his God still loved him. He felt abandoned sometimes, but he knew God was still there. And in the end, the end result was God, that God blessed Job more after all of this happened than he had ever been blessed before. The other person we talked about this morning briefly was David. Look what David wrote in Psalm 6, verses 6-7. through 7. I am worn out from groaning. All night I flood my bed with weeping and drink, drench my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. They fail because of all my foes. Sounds helpless, doesn't it? But that's not the end. Look what he goes on to say in verses 8 and 9. Away from me, all you who do evil, for the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. See, he wasn't beat down. And I will tell you this. Maybe today you're sitting here feeling like verses 6 and 7. But let me assure you that there's a verse 8 and 9 for you also. 
And I will close with this scripture from the Psalms. In spite of all the bad things that David faced in his life, he still said in Psalm 30 and 5 that weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Rejoicing comes in the morning. Yes, I might go through some things, and I might lay in my bed and cry, and I might be just tormented, but I know that eventually this night will pass. So whatever you're going through right now, I urge you to turn to God. Talk to Him. He loves you. He cares about what's going on in your life because you are His child. I also know that just like David, if you will turn to God and talk to Him from your heart, there will come a time of rejoicing for you too. After the night is passed, God bless you.